Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Malachi chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 10 to 16. If you're using those black Bibles near you, page 801, page 801 in the church Bibles. The heading is Judah, God's people have profaned the covenant, trampled, turned their back on it, broken it. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does He he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Amen. Would you please take up your Bibles again and turn back to Malachi chapter 2. I add my welcome to David's this evening. If we haven't met, my name is Will Allen. I'm the assistant minister here. So in Malachi chapter 2, we're doing a series through the book of Malachi. Now tonight's sermon uh, is all about uh, marriage, and to be honest, uh, most people love a, a good wedding, don't they? It's a time of celebration, wonderful service, time with friends, good food, people dressed up. You know, it's a great, a great occasion. And right at the heart of it, we've got you know this this man and the, this woman publicly proclaiming and promising to be faithful uh, to each other, committed to each other through uh, the thick and thin, through the highs and lows, all the way uh, to death. It's staggering and and glorious, isn't it? But I know sitting here this evening, we'd actually have all had some pretty different experiences of marriage and relationships, whether our own, whether our parents, whether someone close to us. And for some of us, I know this evening might be hard to focus on marriage, it might bring a whole number of emotions, whether it's pain, regret, hurt, frustration, guilt. For others of us, we we, we might look at marriage with such rose-tinted glasses that this evening might be a bit of a shock. You know, marriages can go wrong, divorce can really happen. 
And that's, that's just in here, isn't it? And we look at the wider world and we just see things hurtling in a really sad and destructive direction. Uh, marriage has been redefined from what God says it is. Uh, divorce has become easier. The talk of polyamorous relationships is just becoming normal. Uh, pornography is widespread even within marriages, let alone outside of them. So we need to be redirected by God, by his words. We need to be steered, don't we, by his true and right understanding of marriage. Now tonight's passage in Malachi, it isn't the final word on, on marriage and divorce. It's not the only thing the Bible says on it. And so it won't deal with all the issues. Um, and it might raise more questions for some of you than answers. Um, but, but what it does do is engage with two major issues that we, uh, we face. Now Malachi once again challenges us, as we're going to see, and he, he gets us to see what's gone deeply wrong in our view of marriage and the, the people we love. But to understand this, we need to, to get into what's going on in Israel at the time. So if you remember, Malachi is writing to God's people, and it's about 400 BC. Uh, they've come back from exile, the temple has finally rebuilt but things have slipped in the community. They've, they've wandered from God's truth. But God has reminded them that they are deeply loved by him. That was the beginning of chapter one, wasn't it? Despite their sin. And then last week we saw he, he's calling them to a proper worship, to honor him, to be faithful to him. And as we'll see tonight, faithful to one another too. But if you read verse 10, you, you wouldn't know he was talking, going to talk about marriage, would you? It says, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Now, why has he started like this? Well, God through Malachi, he's giving us a vital theological foundation from which to understand what's gone wrong in Israel. And the key thing we need to know is this. We have one God, and we are part of his one people. We have one God, and we are part of his one people. Now, first of all, God reminds us here in verse 10 of who he is. And once again, like he did last, uh, last week, he points us to his fatherhood. He's our father. He loves and cares for his people. He has mercy on them. He wants the best for them. And so is due our honor in return. But he also reminds us there that he's our creator. He made the world. He knows everything in it. He knows how things work. But that doesn't just mean the stars and the, the planets. It's not just about DNA and neuropathways. No, he knows how people work, how we work. He knows how we tick, how sex really works, how relationships fit together, what impact sinners had. So this is a wonderful combination. But the love of a father... And the knowledge of the creator. So that the one who loves us and knows better than us, he is the one telling us about marriage and what is right and wrong. So we come with humility, especially as we see the hurt around us. But the focus in verse 10 isn't just his names. Do you see, it's the fact that we have one father and one creator now this, this idea of oneness, it comes up in again in verse 15. Now verse 15, it's, kind of, it's a notoriously tricky verse to translate because it's, it's terse and pithy, meaning 
knowing which bits relate to which is hard work. But that word one, it's right there, right in it again. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring, oneness again. It's at the heart of what's going on. The one God impacts everything. Now, back in verses 10 to 12, we see the fact that having one Father and one Creator means we are one people. We're united. We're brothers and sisters as a spiritual family. He isn't the father to lots of different communities. No, it's, it's one people, one people under the same covenant. It's always been those found in Christ, whether Israel, who are looking forward to Jesus in the Old Testament, or Jew and Gentile trusting in Christ in the New. And Paul's emphatic in Ephesians that, that in Christ, God has made us one. And again, Paul centers it on our one God. He says this, for through Jesus, we have access in one spirit to the Father. One God means one people. So just look around you. This is your spiritual family sitting with you. Your brothers and sisters. And not only in here, but across the world too. We have one God and we're part of his one people. And that's what marriage itself points to. As Paul says in Ephesians again, husband and wife You know, they're actually pictures of the true mystery, Christ and his church. The people of God are his his one bride and he is our one husband. God and his people tied together in faithfulness. Our faithful father. And through Christ, our, our faithful husband and we the bride, we have one God and part of his one people. And as we're going to see, that has big implications as we come to marriage Now with God, we see faithfulness, don't we? But with the people of Israel, it was faithlessness. It's just repeated again and again. I don't know if you picked it up as David read it, verse 10. Why then are we faithless? Verse 11, Judah has been faithless. Verse 14, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless. Verse 15, let none of you be faithless to the wife of your Youth, verse 16, do not be faithless. Again and again and again, they have broken faith. Rather than being faithful to each other and to their spouses, they've betrayed them. They've gone again against what they said. They've ripped apart what was one. It's betrayal. Betrayal. Now you might think that's a bit of a harsh word to say they betrayed them. But I wonder if we've ever been on the receiving end of someone breaking a serious promise to us. Well, betrayal actually fits the crime. The hurt is seriously deep. And that's the word here, faithless, betrayal. This is God's wake-up call to us once again. And at at times what I'm going to say might be hard or or difficult. but, But God's strong words against our sin doesn't get rid or diminish the glorious grace of the gospel that we've already sung about and prayed about this evening. It, in fact, accentuates it. God's grace is greater than the depths of our sin. Christ didn't leave any stone unturned in his sacrifice. His death is sufficient and his grace is glorious. Remember the words we started with two weeks ago. I have loved you. But this passage, first and foremost, does show us how we betray one another. It takes us into the sin of of what we and others have done. And, And firstly, it shows us this. Choosing to marry a non Christian 
is betraying your spiritual family. Let me say that again. Choosing to marry a non-Christian is betraying your spiritual family. Now this might be a bit of a shock to some of you, or might well actually be part of your story. And as I've said, God has words of grace and mercy, but we need to start to understand what's going on. We need to see the sin. Now in Israel, we see what's happened, and it's there in verse 11. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So men in Israel, they're either divorcing their Israelite wife, or they're never marrying them in the first place, and and marrying women of other nations. And God, he's always spoken against this. He had commanded it clearly in his law, that as the people entered the promised land, they shouldn't marry into the nations that live there. Now, this isn't some kind of racial or ethnic command. You know, God created all people. Just think of Ruth or Rahab, both women of different ethnicities who joined God's people. Now, this isn't about ethnicity. It's about religion. These women were daughters of foreign gods. In other words, they had different spiritual fathers. They worshipped a different god. They didn't know and love the Lord. They rejected him and went after idols. And so the command not to marry people who, who trust in other gods was all about keeping the spiritual purity of his people. God wanted a people fully devoted to him, pure in worship, with, with children growing up and knowing and loving the Lord's. And time and time again, we see in Scripture, when this law was forgotten, people just went off and worshipped other gods. Just think of Ahab marrying Jezebel, a Baal worshipper. Think of Solomon marrying hundreds of foreign wives and his, his heart going after false gods. And at the, end of, uh, sorry, at the time of, um, uh, the, of this, this was prolific in Israel. Ezra and Nehemiah, perhaps written at a similar time, they have to rebuke God's people for this too. And the thing is, this doesn't change as we move into the New Covenant God's people are are still to marry others who are God's people. Paul, when he's speaking to a a new community of believers who would have had kind of mixed marriages because people were slowly becoming Christians there, well, well, then he directs widows and he says, if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. It's those words there, and only in the Lord. In other words, marry those who are also united to Christ. Only those who are Christians. And the more we think about the nature of marriage, we know the wisdom of this. You know, this is one of the closest human relationships. And surely, surely we want to be pulling in the same direction. Our whole lives are to be living sacrifices given for God. Surely we want our our whole marriage to be part of that too as we love and support and pray with and, and, and raise children together. Now, of course, this does not mean marrying a Christian somehow guarantees a perfect marriage. Of course not. Christians are sinners too, as well we know. We're we're all tempted towards disobeying God in different ways. But God wants the best for us. And this is is a good plan for us and our children. And, and, And Malachi just opens this up for us in a way we wouldn't expect. Now, perhaps we might be able to see that marrying a non-Christian might have impact on me. But Malachi wants us to look a bit further. And his key point is this. If we choose to marry a non-Christian, we're betraying our spiritual family. We have one God 
and we're part of his one people. So to marry outside of God's people is to betray that family. Verse 10, why then are we faithless to one another, it says. Now why? Because it impacts the worship of God's people. It's about worship. Verse 11, Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. This phrase, the sanctuary of the Lord, well, it, it first of all means the temple. It's the place of worship. But given it's people who worship there, for marriage to profane the sanctuary of the Lord, then it must mean it's impacted the people and how they worship there. To marry a non-believer, it's betrayed God's people because it's impacted worship. Worship. All sin at its root is against God. So even this, and it, it starts with unfaithfulness to God. The, the person marrying a non-Christian, he's, they're, they're disobeying God. They've decided something else is more important than God's command to, to honor him with everything. They believe something else speaks truth. Something else is telling them what's right and wrong. I don't know, perhaps in Israel they're believing the lie of, of, of happiness from, from more money by marrying a woman from another nation. Or perhaps they, could, they felt they could just treat kind of non-Jews differently. Now for us, now perhaps it's the lie that we, we, you, you're not complete and, unless you're in a sexual relationship. That we need to be true to ourselves, be true to find a partner, whoever they may be. But that's to ignore the gospel. It's disobeying God. It's worshipping something else. And that impacts the people around us. We're a family and we're trying to honour God. And that person's no longer going in the same direction. They've, they've broken faith with, to God. And, and so it discourages others. It confuses the new believer. No wonder in verse 12 the Lord says they're to be cut off. They're in the process of cutting themselves off spiritually. That's just the short term, isn't it? That, that doesn't factor in how their, their worship might be impacted in the long term. You know, it becomes harder, doesn't it? Turning up to church becomes more of a struggle as your spouse wants to do something else with their Sunday. I think going out with a, a non-Christian has probably been one of the biggest reasons I've seen people fall away from the faith. Slowly, bit by bit, just a definite walk away. And choosing to follow that path, it's choosing to, to walk down a path that is with a very slippery slope when it comes to the worship of God. And so rather than making decisions that helps you, the church worship God, we've done the opposite. Choosing to marry a non-Christian is betraying our spiritual family. We're in a covenant with Christ, we're together with family. Yes, I'm a Christian because of Christ saving me and I trust in him, but I am not saved on my own. We are his people in a covenant together. It's, it's a wonderful, glorious truth. It's a wonderful vision of family. Now, I know this might be a bit of a shock for some of us. And I wonder if it's especially a shock because we live in a world where marriage is talked about as something that's totally private. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of none of your business who actually, who I sleep with, what I do in the privacy of my house. It has no bearing on anyone else. 
Now, we've got to be honest, you know, lots of things that go on in, in a marriage are private. Sex is clearly private. What goes on between a couple in bed isn't something we talk about. It's intimate. It's not to be shared readily. But marriage itself, well, that is inherently public. Right from the start, God said it's about leaving your father and mother. It's a clear statement of leaving one family and and beginning another. It's public. It has to be done before witnesses. It's a public statement of faithfulness to one person only. So it impacts others. And we know this is true. And just in society, we know this is true. The stats on, on this are so clear that marriage impacts others for good. You know, marriage and, and general well-being are so clearly linked. Marriage means people remain committed. It means they have healthier lifestyles. It means they give out to their neighbors. It means children have stability and safety. They do better at school. They're even likely to have higher future earnings. 84% of the richest uh, 20% of our society are married compared to just 45% and the bottom 20%. It it impacts the wider society. It's public. And that's just the wider society. How much more does marriage impact our church? The spiritual family God has put us in. But deciding to disobey God, to unite yourself permanently with a non-Christian, it impacts the worship of the church. As Malachi puts it, it profanes the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. God wants us, he wants to protect us as his people. He wants to protect us in our honor of him. So what does this mean for us? Well, firstly, this just opens up for all of us the impacts of spiritual unfaithfulness. Here in Malachi's day, they were seeing it in marriage, but we know it could be in all walks of life, couldn't it? Being a community of life means, sorry, a community of believers means sin is, is never just you and God. As is one people, our sin, our own spiritual unfaithfulness towards God is also against our family. The devil will whisper, your, your sin, don't, don't worry, it's just you. It doesn't really matter. But God is showing us that forgetting him, going against him, actually affects our hearts and so affects those around us. Spiritual unfaithfulness of any sort betrays our family. But let's narrow that as we think about marriage. If you want, if you want to get married, then may this encourage you. Encourage you to find a faithful, worshipping believer. Look for someone who, who loves the Lord, who honors him, and so is growing in godly character. Find someone to pull alongside with that you might make decisions before the Lord. You might pray together, repent together, ask forgiveness together, bring up children together. This word from Malachi is saying it's, it's better to stay unmarried than to choose to settle for a non-Christian. Now, now this can be hard, I know. I know it takes sacrifice. It can mean the pain of seeing friends getting married as you stay single. Let's be honest, there are some really lovely non-Christians out there. They're kind, they're good-looking, they're committed, they bring out the good in us. But God is saying, too much is at stake, your worship is at stake. But I know there might be some of us who are already married to non-Christians, and this, this message may, be, may hurt, may be painful to hear. Or perhaps you know those who are married to non-Christians and you want to support them. Well, firstly, we must remember God is a God of grace. 
He saved us from start to finish. He doesn't drop us when we make mistakes. He sent Christ to die for us. He's at work in our lives. He's made us one church that we can support each other. Now, for some of us, we might have ended up being married to a non-Christian, but that wasn't what happened originally. Things have changed since you first got married. Perhaps you've changed. You've come to faith since you got married. Or perhaps you've grown in wisdom and faith, and you've come to different convictions on this kind of thing later in in life. Or perhaps your husband or wife has changed. They've lost their faith. Now, in these two cases, that's, that's not the same as what Malachi is speaking against. You didn't choose to marry a non-believer. Instead, you found yourself here. Don't feel guilty. The Lord is at work. So even in the wonders of your marriage and your difficulties, keep loving your spouse, enjoying their company, of course, praying for them, praying that they might come to know the Lord. But if you know you did deliberately choose to marry a non-Christian, but God has this, has this evening convicted you, then come to him in repentance. Acknowledge how you've acted wrongly, betrayed him and his people, but also know he's a God who loves to forgive. And he doesn't want your marriage to end suddenly. He wants you to, to keep to your marriage vows, keep seeking to love and cherish this marriage, enjoying and loving your spouse, and, and similarly praying that God in his mercy would work good out of what's gone wrong. Well, that's the first one. But secondly, secondly, choosing to divorce on non-biblical grounds is betraying your close family. It's, it's another heavy one, isn't it? Um, choosing to divorce on non-biblical grounds is betraying your close family. Let's have a look at verse 13. And this second thing you do, you cover... The Lord's altars with tears because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So here we see the other side of marriage, not the marrying of someone we shouldn't, but the breaking of a marriage when we shouldn't. So here we're looking at divorce. And as we do, we need to remember the the blueprint. Our God has created for himself one people, a people to whom he is faithful forever, a people to whom he never gives up on, never fails to love and cherish. His covenantal love is steadfast. He never breaks his word. He never goes back on a promise. He said he would love and save. And so that's what he does. And that's the one to whom our marriages should point. Husbands, husbands are to love like Christ loves his church. Wives are to submit like the church submits to Christ. It's a beautiful picture of God's faithfulness to us. And we know the wonder of lifelong marriages uh, around us, don't we? The goodness of enduring faithfulness. But that means divorce, breaking that covenant isn't what marriage is meant to be like. Jesus said, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is designed to be lifelong till death us do part. But as I said at the beginning, Malachi isn't the only word on divorce. Divorce was allowed in the Old Testament on certain grounds as it is in the New Testament. 
Jesus and Paul gave exceptions to divorce. Now, divorce, it's never commanded, and it really is a last resort. But because of sin in our world, it can be a legitimate reality. But the biblical picture, it is a complex one. So if you, if you, if you want to think more about the other reasons uh, to divorce, do you ever listen back to the sermon David preached on it back in January 2022? It's in our archives. We are preaching through Mark's gospel, and it's in Mark 10. Or, or just come and speak to one of us afterwards. So with that said, though, here in Malachi, for God to condemn divorce, knowing Jesus and Paul give exceptions, he must be talking about a certain kind of divorce. Divorce that is made on non-biblical grounds. In other words, what's going on here is no grounds divorce. Divorce that goes ahead just because one of the two has an aversion to the other. They've, kind of had, they've had enough and they want out. So as we go on, please hear this. You know, in these divorces that Malachi is talking about, there isn't some big offense. There isn't adultery or, or, or pernicious sexual immorality as Jesus speaks about. This spouse hasn't deserted the marriage like Paul speaks about. This, this wasn't about finding refuge from abuse. The, the, the other person hadn't crushed the marriage bond to pieces. Instead, this was divorce because they wanted to. Now, perhaps in Israel, this related marrying foreign women, they'd just seen someone they liked the look of more, or, or perhaps they were in it for personal gain. Now today, we know there are many reasons why people might just move on. Some of it might be quite superficial, quite self-absorbed. I'm, I'm bored. I, I want a new challenge. I, it, it just doesn't seem quite right. I've, I've met someone else who just seems to get me. I just don't love them anymore. But others might be because actually there are some tough things about marriage. You know, our differences, they just seem so big. Or, or, or sex is difficult at the moment. We're on different pages. Or, or life is just really stressful. Especially, say, with our sick child. And we just need, or I just need some space. You know, two sinners coming together can be really hard as we begin to see and expose our hearts to one another. And it, it really can require a lot of hard work. That's why we make promises to each other to stay together because there will be times when we know life would just be easier if I packed my bags and went on my way. But here we see God is deeply against that kind of divorce. In fact, Jesus sees that kind of divorce not even as divorce. He said, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, he says, and marries another commits adultery. In other words, he gives no legitimacy to this kind of divorce. Why? Because it's betrayal. Betrayal of your close family, of your spouse and your promise. This is the kind of divorce he's against. Just look again at verse 14. You have been faithless, though she is your companion and wife of your covenant. A wife or husband is a companion. She's a close friend. She's the one you've been together with, experienced life with. You've had highs and lows together. You've shared your body with her. She's she's seen your heart and your loves and your desires. You've argued and made up. You've grieved and you've laughed together. You're companions. And to divorce them on non-biblical grounds, well, it's to betray them. 
As it says in verse 16, the man who does not love his wife but divorces her says, the Lord of the God of Israel covers his garment with violence. His garment here, it's an image of marriage. And to divorce, well, it's to cover it with, with violence. It's to harm. It's to betray a spouse. It's to deeply wound and neglect them, often at a time when they need you most. And not only her or him, it impacts the children. In the middle of verse 15, we see they're impacted. What was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Divorce impacts them. This, this kind of divorce can say damaging and lasting words to them about themselves and about their mother and father that's just been cast aside. But more than that, she's, she's also the wife of a covenant. Not only does someone betray her as companion, they're betraying their promise to her. And God is a witness to it. He was there on that day, in that church, when you said those vows, for better, for worse, to love and to cherish until death us do part. This is important. Feelings of love are not the foundation of a marriage. It's the promises. Our words, they bind us together. Choosing to divorce on non-biblical grounds It's betraying your close family, your spouse, your children, your word. There's a real seriousness, isn't there, to what God says here. This kind of divorce, it's sinning against him. It shows a a heart moving away from truth, moving away from love, moving away from him. No wonder verse 13, he says, he won't accept their offerings. Love of God has gone from their hearts. To do this is to work against what God has said is good. It's to work against the beauty of companionship and and covenant to desecrate what God has called holy and good. So what does that mean for us? Well, again, again, it depends on what situation we're in. If you're married this evening, may this encourage you to move towards each other. Marriage is wonderful, but it's hard and it takes hard work. You You didn't promise just to live alongside each other, but to love each other, to cherish each other. That takes sacrifice and perhaps often thinking you're putting in more than them. But don't wait until your marriage has already drifted. Make concerted effort now and guard yourselves. Guard yourself. That's the command we see twice. End of verse 15. Guard yourselves in your spirit. Verse 16, so guard yourselves in your spirit. That means keep yourself from temptation as you you pray for God to do that for you. Keep pornography away from you, whether married or not. Put it to death. Be faithful to one wife and be careful who you spend time with alone, who you share and confide in. Don't awaken deep feelings for another. Guard yourselves. And for some of us, We've been on the receiving end of this kind of hurt. You you felt the betrayal, the desertion. Or may you find solace in the loving fatherhood of God. May you know his deep care, his comfort you as you grieve. 
But if once again you see yourself in this portrait in Malachi, you look back on your life and you know you have betrayed a spouse, you have neglected him or divorced her like this and and gone against your promises, you've seen the hurt it's caused your children, well, remember God's grace is sufficient. This isn't the unforgivable sin. Yes, it was wrong to divorce, and if you've remarried similarly, and you you still will have to live with the consequences, but God says, I've loved you. Come to him in repentance. Know the sufficiency of all that Christ has done for you, and ask him to change your heart through it all. And if you've remarried, don't leave your present marriage to go back. You've made these new vows. Stick with them. Fulfill what you've now said. Yes, repent of what came before, but work now in love towards your new spouse. We have one God. We're part of his one family and his wonderful covenant. He's loved us. He's loved us and made us one. So may we all, may we all move together in love, whether married or not, depending on, on Christ's strength, may we in love and gentleness and forgiveness seek to move towards one another in unity, oneness. And, and we pray, may that bring peace where there is hurt, love where there has been anger and bitterness. And in it all, may our Lord Jesus Christ be glorified as we seek to honor him and follow him. Amen.